In Acts chapter 3, we have a record of the uh, work of the apostles of Jesus Christ at the temple in Jerusalem. They went to uh, that particular gate, the beautiful gate of the temple, and found a man who had been lame from birth. He was a beggar, and as he looked at them, they looked at him, drew attention to themselves, and said, we don't have any silver and gold, but what we do have, we give you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this man, as he took the hand of the apostles reaching down, his legs were strengthened, he got up, he began to walk and to dance and to run and to leap, praising God. And as we saw then last Lord's Day evening, uh, Peter now takes the lead in explaining to the crowds that are gathering in Solomon's porch at the temple what has taken place. And he deflects attention from himself and from John. He says, it's not our power, not our piety by which this man has been so healed, but begins immediately to draw their attention to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he did in the preaching on the day of Pentecost, he's holding Christ before them in some of the, the excellence of his glory, using various names and titles. And not ashamed at all to, to point the finger at these men and women who are listening and to say that though this is the Christ, you did not esteem him as such, but you murdered the prince of life. You were full of neglect and rejection and hatred. And then the wonderful gracious offer that even now, says Peter, if you will receive this Jesus... If you will turn aside from all your false and foolish and sinful notions of him and receive him as the son of God who died for sinners and rose again from the dead, that the same power by which this man has been healed will be exercised towards you and you will have life in your soul. You will have your sins forgiven. You will have times of refreshing from the presence of God. You will have an expectation of the glory which is to come. You are then, in conclusion, the end of chapter 3. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them, and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Let's briefly ask God's help as we look at this portion. Father, we plead then for that same spirit to be with us, to help us both in preaching and hearing, as helped Peter and illuminated the understanding of those who heard him on that day in Solomon's porch. Lord, instruct us, remind us of what is real, 
what is true, and above all, what is powerful to save. Bless us as we hear your truth, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. It's exciting to read what happened at the beautiful gate and in Solomon's porch. You get this sense of delightful momentum. Again, the, the wind of the Spirit is blowing. And as on the day of Pentecost, there is power in the preaching. You could almost imagine uh, a, a small parallel, perhaps not quite on the same scale. But think of when we go and, uh, and we've preached in the open air in the Crawley Town Centre. Or when we've spoken uh, here on the square in Maidenbower. And imagine that uh, we're gathered there and the preaching of God's word is taking place. And I, I, can, I can almost sort of see and feel, actually, you know, God is helping us and, and people start to gather. People are actually listening. And not perhaps just in their ones and twos, but there's tens or twenties. And you've perhaps been there when you've seen, yeah, there are people who are stopping to listen. There are people who are actually engaging. And as you hear the preacher, and as God begins to help him in a particular way, all of a sudden there's a hand on your shoulder. <clears throat> you turn around, and there's a senior policeman. And there's a local councillor. And there's one of the liberal clergymen in the town with their, their rainbow stole wrapped around their shoulders. And you think, ah... Now we're in trouble. That's a little bit like what happened to Peter. He's in full flow, it seems. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And as they were speaking to the people, right in the very moment of this wonderful sermon, holding up Christ being preached, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees descended upon them. Now up to this point, it hasn't been seamless progress, but it's been largely painless. There have been a few showers of scorn. Remember, these, these men are drunk, even though it's only first thing in the morning, and Peter's had to deal with that. But now you've got a transition, not just from the events of chapter 3 to the events of chapter 4, but from largely peaceful progress to the first wave of painful persecution. Now, the apostles, remember, <coughs> had at one time been men who had hoped, imagined, or even wished that they might obtain the crown without the cross. There are a number of occasions when they had wished, if you will, to take a shortcut to glory. They had hoped to begin with that the Lord would restore the kingdom to Israel and they would sit together with him on thrones. And that was the whole of the picture. But again and again, our Lord reminded them that his was a different path and so, therefore, must be the path of his disciples. Let me give you just a selection of texts from Luke's Gospel. Here's chapter 6, 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Then in chapter 9 and verse 5. Whoever will not receive you, this is their first going out, the, the lesser commission. 
Whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Later on in the same chapter, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Chapter 10 and verse 10. Whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets. Verse 16, he who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Chapter 12 and verse 11, now when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, that's very precise in terms of what's going to follow on here. Do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And then in 14, verse 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple he'd warned them john records it chapters 15 in particular if they hated me they're going to hate you also these men had hoped that there'd be a shortcut to glory that they could obtain the crown without going by way of the cross and our lord has never shied away from teaching them that there is indeed a crown to be gained the crown comes by way of the cross if they are true followers of the Lord Jesus. Now I'm not suggesting that at this point they'd begun to think that everything would be a bed of roses from this point on. Christ has been speaking plainly to them. But this is the point in the narrative of Acts at which battle is joined. You've got strikes and counter strikes that now begin to take place. And, and, and I would have some sympathy with them. Would you not have hoped if you'd been there at Pentecost that from now on everything's going to be great? Christ is enthroned. He's risen from the dead. The Holy Spirit has been given. Look, we've preached one sermon and there's 3,000 people who've been saved. And, and, and Christ had said that there'd be some trouble. They thought we were drunk. We explained that we weren't. And then we preached to the crucifiers of Christ that the risen Jesus would save them. And they said, what must we do to be saved? And we told them and they were saved. Now, at that point, you would be forgiven, perhaps, if you were a disciple for thinking, this is going to be great. We're told that his kingdom's going to spread, that it's going to cover the whole earth. All those promises of progress, these are ours. If so, this would have been a reality check. There is no seamless, painless progress in the kingdom of God. But there is overcoming in the blood of the Lamb. And as them, so with us. And we need to grasp this because when it comes to persecution and when it comes to progress, we can be absolutists. It's, it's an either or with us. Either there's progress and things are good and people are being converted and we've got no problems and there's, there's no challenges or battles. 
or it's persecution. It's hard, it's miserable, it's difficult. And it's either progress without persecution or persecution without progress. Brothers and sisters, as it was then, so it is now. Persecution and progress keep pace in the kingdom of heaven. And we should not expect one without the other. So let's first of all watch the fight and then we'll learn to fight the fight. What's going on in Acts chapter 4 in these opening verses? Peter and John have been speaking in Solomon's porch and now the captain of the temple, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. It's the language of a sudden confrontation. They set upon them. There, there could literally have been a sort of a hand reaching out and grabbing somebody by the shoulder. Who are the people who are now involved? Well, you've got the priests. You've got the religious workers who are on duty. Probably the rank and file of the temple labourers at this point. <clears throat> you've also got the captain of the temple. Now this is a, a senior priest, very high up, perhaps even second in command, if you will, in the, the temple hierarchy. But he is the head of security. So there's a bit of muscle here. I don't know if he carried a sword, but I can't imagine the, temp the captain of, this, of the temple being very far away from some of his temple guards. Now, that senior policeman had laid his hand on your shoulder. You can imagine there'd have been a couple of bobbies not too far away watching to see what would happen next. And then you've got the Sadducees. And Luke, our historian, draws particular attention to these Sadducees. Now, these are, again, part of the religious hierarchy in Jerusalem. They are fundamentally the liberal teachers of the day. They are extremely materialistic and rationalistic. For them, what you can see is what counts. That's what's real. If you can't see it, it isn't there. The Sadducees would have said in their religious context that they believed that what Moses had written in what they called the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that's God's word and nothing else is. So if Moses himself didn't say it, we're not going to believe it. They were also entrenched in the political world of their day. They were the ones who would have cooperated more with, with Herod and the Romans in order to maintain what they could of a sort of religious political power there in Jerusalem. You might remember that the Lord Jesus himself came up against them on at least one occasion in Luke chapter 20. And they brought that ridiculous challenge to him. Where they said, suppose there was a woman and she'd been married to seven brothers, one after the other. Or what's sometimes called lever at marriage. Uh, and then, so what's going to happen in the resurrection? You know, they don't believe in the resurrection. They're deliberately setting up something that they think is, is ridiculous, is nonsensical. So, so when you get to the resurrection, who's going to have her as wife? Because they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in life after death. And so they challenge Christ on that basis. And this is the ugly combination that lays hands on Peter and John and perhaps others here in the porch of Solomon. It's a very ugly and a very powerful combination. Again, 
we might not have to deal with a captain of the temple and, and the Sadducees and the priesthood, but it's a combination of religious and political and civil power. They're ganging up on Peter and John. What's the point of this confrontation? Well, they were greatly disturbed. The language is, is, is of being provoked beyond patience. And again, you'll recognise this perhaps sometimes from uh, the open-air work that we've done. You see somebody, and to start off with, they're, they're, sort of, they're, walking, they're walking past. And then they walk back again. And they don't really want to get involved, but they can't really move on. And, and perhaps they, they fold their arms. Perhaps they st- and then <sighs> they're getting wound up. And the more you speak about the Lord Jesus Christ, the more frustrated this person becomes. Well, if they've got no particular power, they might spit, they might shout, hurl a bit of abuse. But these people are being provoked and they've got some kind of authority, at least in their own eyes and in their own sphere. And it comes to the point where they can't hold it in any longer. This preaching that Peter's been undertaking, explaining how the man who was born lame is walking and leaping by the power of Jesus Christ, the same power by which others can enjoy life from death, because it's this Jesus who rose again from the dead. That's what now seems to provoke this gang of different groups into action, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. Now, in one sense, it's quite tragic Because it's as if they sweep away the fact that there's a man who was lame, who's now walking and leaping and praising God. So often you see a kind of a casual cruelty in the enemies of Jesus Christ and his people. They have no regard for those in need. They have no compassion for those who are distressed. Who cares about them? And they're going for the jugular. The miracle notice is not the issue. And that's again important for us today. Because a lot of people would say, if we could see the miracles, we'd believe. Show us a bit of this so-called power, and we won't have any problems. In fact, there are religious people who will say, we, we've got miracles, so we're going to be okay, because we can show people we've got the power of God. What happened then? They completely bypassed the miracle. It might as well not have happened. Why? Because the issue is that they are preaching in the name of Jesus a resurrection. This then is the challenge. First of all, that they taught. And second, what they taught. The fact that these men are teaching is offensive to them. That actually comes up later on in the history. Go down to verse 7. When they'd set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now, if you maybe we to change around the word order a little bit, back toward the original, you get a sense of it. We can do it perhaps by the way that we could read it. By what power or by what name have you done this? In, in the Greek, if I'm, if I'm right, that you is left to the end. It says, by what power or by what name has this been done by people like you? And it comes up again in verse 13. They perceived that these were uneducated and untrained men. Now you've got the priests and you've got the captain of the temple guard. You've got the Sadducees. You've got the top dogs to some extent in the system. We are the men who are meant to be teaching. 
Who do you think you are to be standing up and telling anybody anything? Who do you think you are to be teaching, say, the people who think they're the only ones who ought to be teaching? It is as ironic today as it was then that the people who hate others' teaching see themselves as the great teachers. We're the arbiters of the truth. How dare you speak anything? We alone are entitled to dictate how people should think and what they should believe. We know and you don't. And you can hear the same tone as in our academics and our scientists and our liberal teachers and preachers today, can you not? We know you don't. Who do you think you are to be talking your nonsense? The fact that you think you've got a right to teach offends those who are persuaded that the right to teach belongs to them alone. And what they taught, that they preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, Luke's done a brilliant job for us here because that's really the finest one-sentence summary of the apostolic preaching in Jerusalem up to this point. What is the message of the apostles when they begin to declare God's good news? In Jesus, resurrection from the dead. Through his name, who died but rose again, there is life from death for all who put their trust in him. Life for the soul and ultimately the hope of glory. Again, verse 7. By what power or by what name has this been done by you? Who are you to be telling us about this man, Jesus? And remember who is ganging up against them. This is doctrinally offensive. The Sadducees don't believe in life after death. The Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. And these men are preaching a Jesus who's died and risen again and who is bringing life from death to others also. It's practically nonsensical to a Sadducee. This is just insane. There is no life after death. There is no existence after the grave. This is an utter impossibility then it's politically disruptive. You've seen this again and again, and you still will. If these men cause trouble in Jerusalem, we're going to have the power balance between us and the Romans messed up. We're in danger if this kind of thing gets a grip here in Jerusalem. And then it's personally condemning. It touches these men. Do you believe in this Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised again from the dead. Not just do you believe generally in a resurrection from the dead, but do you believe that the Jesus whom you crucified has been raised again from the dead? Again, it feels modern. At least it does as I look at this. Doctrinally offensive, practically nonsensical, politically disruptive and personally condemning. It's very up to date, isn't it? Even though this is some 2,000 years old. And you see, the arrogance of the modern world will say, well, of course, people back then believed all kinds of rubbish, didn't they? No, they didn't. 
People back then were crippled by the same unbelief as they are crippled today. When the gospel was preached in these first days, you didn't have this bunch of idiotic peasants who all just nodded their heads without thinking. There was antagonism toward the preaching of the gospel and it is of precisely the same kind as we contend with today. The problem isn't that today we know so much more than those stupid people back then. The problem is that in every age the human mind is darkened by sin. And everywhere you go and everywhere this word is preached, the natural man will not receive it. For the natural mind, the carnal mind, is enmity against God. So you have these people. And this is the point of offence. And then you notice the pressure. Verse 3. They laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now there are layers of distress building here. I don't think any of us enjoy an argument. Very few people actually enjoy an argument. If you're confronted by the civil and religious powers of the day, it is distressing. And now it's not just that there's an argument going on, that the temple guard have got their hands on them. That's upsetting. If you've ever been manhandled, if you've been, perhaps been, been preaching the gospel and someone has shoved you, if you've been talking on the door and someone's grabbed you by the shirt, if you've been speaking on the streets and someone's spat at you as you've been talking, these things are distressing and they are grievous. And now not only words against them, not only hands upon them, but they are thrown into the prison. They're held in custody until the next day. And again, that's unpleasant. You, you perhaps know what it's like to, to know that something's coming up and you've got a long, cold, dark night ahead of you. You know how your mind might fill with doubts and fears. You might, some of you, begin to rehearse in your, the what-ifs of all these things. This is a distressing situation for these men to be in. Perhaps the fears are growing. But do not overlook the progress. Luke doesn't. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That might not be the interim conclusion that you would expect. The preaching has begun. The gospel is being proclaimed. A risen Jesus is declared. Initially, the progress seems so wonderful. But now, as they're speaking to the people, those who would oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, they are provoked to the point where they can no longer hold themselves at a distance. And in they come, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, and their hands are laid upon these men. And they're disturbed, they're provoked, because they're preaching in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. This is a big deal to these people. This is threatening on every level. And so they grab those who've been preaching and they put them in some kind of custody until the next day when they know they're going to be dragged before, as Jesus had told them, the Sanhedrin, the judges of the land. And you might then have expected it would be, and everything came to a flying stop. You know, these are the these are the spearhead. This is the tip of the apostolic spear. This is Peter. This is John. They're in Solomon's porch. And now there's been this confrontation. 
Is this the end? No. Many of those who heard the preaching of Peter and John in Solomon's porch believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Brothers and sisters, it's not either or. It's both and. Here's the persecution. Strike and now counter-strike. But the gospel has been proclaimed and sinners are still bowing the knee. You can chain a preacher but you cannot chain the gospel that he preaches. You can close a church, but you cannot wipe out the reality of a body of believers. You can shut down a building. You can silence a microphone. You can stop the broadcast, but the power of God's gospel remains. And this is what's taking place in Jerusalem. It cannot be yoked, this power of God. These are men standing against the Almighty. This is the God who's going to use the weakness of the creature to confound the strength in which the world boasts. Like in Acts 3.20, and Peter promised that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before. Now this word of Christ has been proclaimed and many believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. The immediate outcome of the first wave of fierce persecution is that the church grows all the more. And not just by ones or twos, but by thousands in addition. How? How did people come to be what we now call Christians? My friends, they believed the word. Sometimes you might be saying, how do I become a Christian? I fairly often hear that question. So how do I become a Christian? And the answer is very simple. You believe in the word of Jesus Christ. But Then there's another question that often follows after, isn't there? How do I know that I'm a Christian? Well, you're just on the other side of the same equation. Have you same equation? Have you believed in the word of Jesus Christ? Whoever believes is saved. Are you trusting in this Christ? Do you accept what God has said and cast yourself upon this Jesus for the saving of your soul? That is what it means to be added to the people of God. Now what lessons do we learn? We've been, we've been watching this fight at a distance of about 2,000 years. What particular, particular lessons can we learn for the fighting of this fight? Well, the first one, and in some senses it's a little similar to something that we considered this morning, is the reality of spiritual warfare. The reality of spiritual warfare. Again, remember what our Lord had said to these men. John 15 and verse 21. All these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent you. What things? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. When did our Lord ever suspend that warning? 
Does anyone here imagine, however fondly it may be, that somehow we are going to be the people, this is going to be the place, we are going to be the generation of believers for whom it will not be true that if we follow Jesus Christ, we must also suffer persecution. I think, sadly, we often imagine or hope that it might be us. Maybe we'll be the ones who'll get away with it. And too often, the, fa- the wish becomes the father of the reality. Because we then find ways of avoiding this persecution. But my friends, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Behind these priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees is the satanic malice that we have been considering in the last couple of Lord's Day mornings. We have an enemy. That enemy is against us. And his malice is going to take various forms. It may be religious, it may be political, it may be civil, it may be an ugly combination of them all. And unless we understand that Christian service is warfare, we are going to be shocked when it happens and discouraged from its pursuit. I'm not saying you're going to enjoy it even at its lowest level, sparks rather than roaring flames. These things are grievous, they are distressing. But the same anger that finally erupted when Peter and John were preaching the name of Jesus in Solomon's porch is the same anger that some of you have to deal with in your own homes from people who do not name the name of Christ. It's the anger that you get when you're talking to people on the square or or knocking on the doors. And you know that it doesn't lie very far beneath the surface. Even the most outwardly British of people, with that nice thick veneer of cultural politeness, if you preach in Jesus' name the resurrection from the dead, it will not be long before that veneer cracks And you will see the anger of people who will not have Jesus risen from the dead. Tragically, you will find it within the professing church of Jesus Christ. There are people who get angry when the gospel is preached. They call themselves Christians. But this is not what they want. And they can be some of the fiercest and the most cruel of the enemies of the gospel. But it is the same point of resistance. It's the preaching of the resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ. And sometimes we get distressed because of this warfare in the church. I've had people say to me, why did you have to make them so angry? Why why did you have to preach that today that 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 lady's been coming for so long and 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 now she's walked out and she was furious now i am not suggesting by any stretch that i am a perfect preacher but i think that in most of those cases i've been able to say with a clear conscience i don't think i made them angry i think they got angry because of jesus 
I know I was preaching Jesus and the resurrection from the dead, but that fury is not so much against the messenger as it is against the message. And the fact that they're angry may mean that the gospel is doing its work. You see, we can get very distressed. This person got upset. This person didn't like it. That person has become distressed. Now they're spitting. Now they're raging. Now they're shouting. What are we doing wrong? Why do we have to keep these kinds of messages front and center? Because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We have no other. This is the gospel. And if people react in this way to it, it is not novel. If anything, it is demonstrating the reality of the power of him whose name we proclaim. My friends, progress and persecution will keep pace. And if we avoid persecution, it's the recipe for the end of progress. Because the way you avoid persecution is to pull back on the gospel. And the moment you pull back on and dilute the gospel, there is no power left in the preaching. There is no life left in the church. We have to understand that wherever there is powerful progress, there will be not only strike, but counter-strike against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not expect that there will be ease in following the Saviour. This is not a bed of roses. This is a path of thorns. Now, I'm not saying we should wish distresses, persecutions, tensions, divisions on ourselves. We've had a beautiful year. We stood up at the beginning, or right at the end, I should say, of 2023, and we talked about the favour that God had showed to so many of us. Praise God for that. What do you want for 2024? Peace? We're not against peace, are we? But don't you want gospel progress with persecutions? Some of you will know the name Benjamin Breckinridge Warfield. He was a great theologian in the Presbyterian Church in America uh, in the 18th, I think, into the 19th century. And there was one occasion when there was a great rift in the denomination to which he belonged and the liberals were pushing one way and Warfield was amongst the faithful, the orthodox. And a lady came to him uh, before a very significant meeting which the, the, the churchmen were going to gather together. And she came and she said to him something like this, Mr. Warfield, I do trust there will be peace this evening. And Professor Warfield responded, Madam, if the truth is at stake, I shall be praying for war. He wasn't a warlike man. He wasn't zesty, ready for a fight. But what was important to that man was the truth of the gospel. And he recognized that there would be war if the truth were at stake. Because the progress of the gospel is by the preaching of Jesus Christ. And if that takes place, there will be persecution. So remember the reality of warfare. Secondly, briefly, remember the weapons of our warfare. 
What did these apostles do when they laid hands on them? Nothing. <laughs> they didn't fight. Remember that when Jesus had said to these men before, now when you go out, you make sure you've got a sword and a back, you know, you, you need to be ready for life on the road. Peter was the man who'd taken out his sword when they'd assaulted Jesus in Gethsemane and had cut off the ear of the high priest. If there was a single apostle you might have relied upon to think, you know what we need now is bigger guns, it would have been Peter. They laid hands on Peter, they laid hands on John, and they took them and they put them in custody. And there's not a suggestion of a scuffle. There's not a suggestion of any kind of... They didn't rally the troops... They didn't call for a religious flash mob. The point was not to try and engage the political powers on their behalf. They might even have been saying, hey, we've at least got a few priests. Let's see if we can mobilize the priests who are on our side to take on the priests who are on their side. There's no armed struggle here. There's, there's no immediate legal response. Again, I'm not saying that these things are utterly irrelevant, but there's no campaign on a human level and we'll see this again and again the weapons of our warfare are not carnal what will these men keep doing proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ with prayer that is the fundamental response to the persecutions that they face now, we know that there will be occasions later on where Paul's quite happy to use his Roman citizenship to claim a measure of protection. So we're not saying there's no space for any kind of practical response. But so often today, heavenly activism has become our last resort. Whereas for the apostles, it is the first. We're in trouble. Who are we going to call? Our God. We're in trouble. What are we going to do? Let's print some placards. Let's get a march going. Let's brand some T-shirts. Let's see if we can get some viral video up and running. No, we're going to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. My friends, this is not pietism. This is piety. This is trust in God. Our response, if things should become difficult and painful and persecutions might arise, must have at its core a calling upon the name of the God whose gospel we preach and the preaching of that gospel in the power of the God upon whom we call. These are the weapons of our warfare and the church cripples itself, hamstrings itself when it tries to fight on man's terms. This is what they call today asymmetric warfare. The enemy comes in with political, religious and civil assault. We respond by calling upon heaven in order to do what heaven alone can accomplish. And then last, but by no means least and briefly, the progress of our warfare. Christ had said in Luke 11 that there was a strong man who had his spoil. He had seized and robbed. And now the stronger man was going to come in and he was going to take back what belonged to him. And here we see the stronger man advancing. 
Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. The good news of Jesus Christ overcomes when it is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. The book of the Acts and the history of the church as a whole are the history of the spread of the kingdom of Jesus Christ in the face of all the opposition that comes against us. John 16 and verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Persecution, undeniably. Painful, yes, but progress. <coughs> now what if we could strike a deal this evening? What if we could actually calculate this up? Pastor Walker, are you prepared to spend next of the six of the next months of this year in prison if 5,000 people could be saved from their sins over the space of the same period? And in addition, the church is going to be burnt down. And there'll have to be 10 of the present membership who sign up to being beaten alongside of you. And most of you will have your bank accounts frozen. Half of you will lose your jobs. Six of you will be disowned by your families. 5,000 people will be saved from their sins. Is that a good deal? I'm not saying that lightly, brothers and sisters. C can I say with Judgment Day honesty that I am ready to take up my cross to follow Jesus Christ you see it's not well persecution or progress when the gospel is preached in the power of the Holy Spirit there is progress and there is persecution if you know anything of the history of revival we've talked about some of this in our prayer meetings over the last couple of years Revival is not the time when everything gets peachy for the church and thousands of people are converted and no one has any problems. Seasons of revival are often the seasons of the most intense persecution because battle is joined. If you want progress, there will be persecution. But even if there is persecution, there is progress when the gospel is proclaimed. It's not either or. It's both and. And we need to reckon with the reality of this warfare. We need to rely on the weapons of our warfare. And we need confidence in the progress of God in his warfare. My closing question then is whose side are you on? Because the Christ who rose from the dead is the conqueror.
You've heard his word. Have you believed in the name of Jesus? And do you enjoy the resurrection from the dead because of him who conquered sin and death and hell? If so, welcome to the fight. It's fearful. It's glorious. And Christ is worth it.